when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, listeners. Before we start today's episode, we at the FT want to know what you'd like to hear more of. So to help us understand, we're running a survey that you can find online at ft.com slash politics survey. There's also a link in our show notes. It takes around 10 minutes to complete, and if you fill it out, you'll have the chance to win a pair of Bose Quiet Comfort earbuds. So don't miss out. Now, on with the show. Rishi Sunak marked his 100 days in office this week, an event beloved of political journalists. And there was a video from 10 Downing Street to market. Trust is earned, and I will earn yours. Hard inflation, grow the economy, reduce debt, cut waiting lists, and stop the loans. I believe that those are the country's priorities. And I want all of you to hold me accountable for delivering all of that. We really can change our country for the better. The Prime Minister likes setting and marking his own homework, but the reality has been a little more complicated. Strikes, ministerial resignations and sleaze are among the issues that have cropped up in his first 100 days that didn't feature on Sunak's list of tests that he's setting himself. The IMF predicts that Britain's economy will shrink by more than half a percent this year, making it the only leading nation expected to enter a recession. Now, the Deputy Prime Minister was facing 24 separate allegations of bullying. As many as half a million workers on strike across the UK, the biggest day of industrial action in over a decade. A Prime Minister overseeing chaos, overwhelmed at every turn, can't even deal with tax avoiders in his own cabinet. Is he starting to wonder if this job is just too big for him? Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, George Parker, in the hot seat vacated by Seb Payne, just for the next few weeks before the pod is relaunched with a great new format. In this week's episode, we'll be looking at Sunak's first 100 days and what they tell us about how he's shaping up as Prime Minister. I'm delighted to be joined by the top FT commentators, Miranda Green and Stephen Bush. And then we'll be discussing the government's approach to net zero. Is Rishi Sunak getting it right? Or is he being held back by Tory MPs who share David Cameron's famous observation that the party should ditch the green crap? Jim Pickard and Robert Shrimsey will be here. Thank you all for joining. So, Rishi Sunak marked an important landmark in his premiership this week, but the 100 days anniversary was marred by a wave of mass strikes. Reports that Dominic Raab, his deputy, is facing a growing number of bullying allegations, which he denies, of course, and a looming row with Tory MPs over Brexit. Miranda Green and Stephen Bush are here with me. Stephen, can I start with you? How would you assess Rishi Sunak's first 100 days? So I think in some ways he's stopped the bleeding around the Conservative Party to a point where 
we no longer believe that the Conservative Party might cease to exist after the next election. A lot of the sort of post-mortems of the first 100 days seem to have completely forgotten what he inherited. They quite rightly are focusing on the other half of that, which is it does not look like he is going to get them into a position where they can win the next election. But the strange problem he has is he's had a pretty successful 100 days in terms of stabilizing the Conservative Party, stabilizing the UK and the market, other than the mortgage markets. But he hasn't done a good job at all of explaining to the party what a mess they were in, or really getting any credit from either the party or the country for any of that work. Yeah, I think if you told Conservative MPs when he took over where they'd be now, they would have gone, well, thank God, you know, we're 35 points behind in the polls. Now you speak to them and they go, well, yeah, but what's he done in the intervening 99 days? Yeah, exactly. Now, Miranda, what does the first 100 days tell us about Rishi Sunak's approach to government, would you say? Well, I think you have to start with the promise he made on day one, restoring the very idea of integrity and professionalism after the Johnson and Truss era. And the problem for Rishi Sunak is that he hasn't come in fresh. He's the third Conservative Prime Minister since the last general election. And he's got to sort of reinvent conservatism in a very short time period with maybe 18 months or so to go to the next election with this terrible kind of hangover from the Johnson and Truss period. And I think the problem is, is that as we saw with that day one promise, integrity and professionalism, it's really, really hard for him to start afresh and keep that pledge. So what they've had him do is do some sort of political tricks that seem to have worked for prime ministers in the past, right? So you invent five pledges by which you want to be Mm. measured by the electorate. But actually, the five pledges that they nicked from New Labour were quite measurable objectives. Drishi Sunak's are quite vague and also leave out some core areas that the public care about, like, for example, education. On integrity, he's got the hangover problem of all these people who are still in his government, who were also in the Truss and Johnson governments, and who bring with them this awful baggage of sleaze in one way or another. And of course, at the moment, the Raab problem is his biggest problem. But we've also had the Zahawi issue. We've had the Gavin Williamson issue. And we've also got Suella Braverman with question marks over her. And she was reappointed by Rishi Sunak on his first day in office. So he's really struggling, I think, at this core task of showing that you've got impetus and some sort of mission to the beginning of your prime ministership. Yeah, and Stephen, I mean, a lot of water's passed under the bridge in the last three months or so, hasn't it? The, um, this trust interlude is almost like a fever dream somewhere, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> parked in the collective imagination of the Conservative Party. But what is interesting, I think, is the way that Rishi Sunak's approval ratings have been falling quite sharply in the last few weeks. And it's very rare for prime minister's approval ratings to go up during their time in office. And some of Keir Starmer's criticisms of Rishi Sunak not being big enough for the job seem to be landing, don't they? Yeah, as you say, leaders mostly don't get more popular in office. Now, of course, the hope, if you're the Conservative Party, is that the economy comes to your rescue. But looking at the very bleak projections we have, that doesn't seem to be that likely either. You know, come back to what Miranda just said. One of the problems, I think actually the biggest and most significant mistake he made in the first 100 days was that promise about integrity and accountability. Because we know that he's inherited a very weak political position. And if you're in a weak political position, well, you can't prioritise integrity. You've got to prioritise passing legislation and keeping your party together. And it's not a good idea in politics to make a promise that is going to turn you into a liar very quickly. And I think it's going to be hard for him to maintain the advantages he had when he became leader, you know, 
the, the real feelings of warmth than he did attract in some quarters. I think it's going to be really hard for him to maintain that, given that he's got this millstone of accountability and integrity at every level around his neck. And some of these mistakes are self-inflicted, aren't they, Miranda? Because um, you know we hear a lot of people talking about the fact that a lot of these scandals began during the Boris Johnson era. But nevertheless, look at the people that Rishi Sunak appointed to his first cabinet. There were people like Suella Braverman, who'd basically be, had to resign the week earlier for breaching the ministerial code. Gavin Williamson, who'd had to resign previously in a scandal. Nadim Zahawi, who had his tax affairs in the public domain, or at least being reported by the media at the time. And of course, there were these allegations swirling around Dominic Raab. So these are self-inflicted mistakes, aren't they? Well, that's right. And that all helps the Labour Party's main mission, which is to attack Sunak's judgment and Sunak's ability to be a strong enough leader to put the Johnsonian past of the Conservative government since the last election behind him. And I think part of the problem for him is the question mark about whether he actually is very good at politics in the sense of sort of whether he actually relishes the political part of the job of being prime minister. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I thought it was incredibly revealing when a few weeks ago at Prime Minister's Questions, when he was asked about all of the industrial action across the public sector, he talked about the union leaders being unreasonable. It was very interesting that and revealing because it was problematic on two levels. One, if you go into politics and become a prime minister, you know, you are not going to encounter only reasonable people. And this kind of management consultancy view of the world where you're dealing with rational people and only rational problems, that's really not politics. And two, a lot of the public, as we know, for example, from the polling on the teachers' strikes on Walkout Wednesday, as it was called this week, quite a significant portion of the public are actually backing the strikers. So is he calling the British public unreasonable for thinking that mm. the public sector's creaking at the seams? Really, that's the problem. Do you know what I mean? That this idea of can he actually do the job, it's more than a technocratic job. And he does come across as such a technocrat. He does. I mean, you can tell that he spends time looking under the bonnet of problems and he gets officials in and he actually really enjoys getting to grips with thorny issues like the boats or the hospital emergency department problems and so on. But Stephen, Miranda's making that point and you hear it often said of Christina, is he actually good at politics? And you look back at some of the mistakes he made even as Chancellor, you know, rejecting a windfall tax for months, even though you could see eventually he was going to have to give in on that rejecting Marcus Rashford's campaign for free school meals. Again, something you could see he was on the wrong side of public opinion. And then not being quick enough to correct the mistakes in the first place. Yeah, one of the interesting things about politics alone is I think Rishi and Keir have a lot in common. Both very experienced outside of politics, not that experienced in politics. And they both had to have very sharp learning curves because of the civil wars that their parties have been in in that time. But at the moment, I think it feels pretty uncontroversial to say that Keir Starmer has shown that he can learn on the job politically. And it does feel a bit that Rishi Sunak can't. One of the interesting challenges, of course, when you become prime minister is you have to stop being a departmental minister. You have to provide that strategic direction that can only come from Downing Street. I feel often when I'm talking to ministers at the moment, some of them like it, some of them are complaining. But in an odd way, what they aren't getting is that direction from the boss. They're essentially getting mm. Downing Street as an auxiliary minister of state, which doesn't really work. Yeah, you speak to ministers say so there's very little control from the centre and the, the civil service as well, coming from Simon Case, hardly any sort of pressure from the top, which is fascinating. Randy, Stephen mentioned earlier, of course, that his great success, Rishi Sunak, in the first few months of his premiership was stabilising the economy and digging the country out of the hole that this trust has got us into. But already, Tory MPs seem to have quite short memories. He's facing this new pressure from the Tory right for tax cuts now, which is incredible, isn't it? 
I think the next few weeks are going to be completely fascinating, actually, in the run-up to the March Jeremy Hunt budget, because on the back benches, they're really pushing for a swing to the right, when what delivered stability after the trust quasi-quarteng disaster that sent the market spiralling was actually achieved by being quite unconservative, reverting to the Treasury orthodoxy that the right of the Tory party was so determined to destroy. So the backbenchers seem to want to pull the Sunak government almost back in the direction of the failed trust quarteng experiment. And how they think that's going to help them, I don't know. But ideologically, they believe that tax cuts are the path to prosperity for the country. Whether they brook opposition to that point of view enough to support the budget properly when we get to March is going to be very interesting to see. And I think to Stephen's point, you know, this idea of these short memories, because Mm. also if you think of another sort of success of Rishi Sunak as an individual when he was chancellor was, of course, the furlough scheme, which was phenomenally generous. The memory of that largesse fades with the people who would appreciate that sort of leader now in Downing Street. But unfortunately, that idea of him as doing unconservative things that a big government lingers on the back benches where it does him damage. Yeah, Stephen, I was kind of looking at the Dominic Raab question, which has come to dominate this week at Westminster, the allegations surrounding him and the revelations that more and more people are coming forward and making these allegations, which he denies. Do you think he should step down while this inquiry by Adam Tolley Casey is going on? Politically, no, I don't think so. What was the case for putting Dominic Raab in there originally? It was one he had been loyal and actually at the point when everyone else had fled, basically when the ministers were going, I know I said Liz Truss would be a disaster. But what I actually meant was she'd be a brilliant prime minister. You think you have to, in a parliamentary democracy, reward that kind of loyalty in order to keep the show on the road. So it was the right call to have him in then just from a party management perspective. And I think you do have to have due process once you have started a process He's there because he's an ultra-loyal supporter of Rishi Sunak. Obviously, the future of the European Court of Human Rights and how that engages with the boats is going to be so core to everything this government wants to do. And I think, in some ways, the huge problem Rishi Sunak has on the Raab issue, and who knows what the inquiry will find, but I can't really work out how he could replace him. He might have to get rid of him, but there isn't really, I think, a politician out there who is legally qualified of the same mind as Rishi Sunak on the boats issue Mm. and is a proven loyalist. You know, to mount my hobby horse about why it was a stupid promise to make about integrity and accountability, (laughs) this is why you shouldn't make that promise because politics is primarily about loyalty and policy. It's not, unfortunately, about integrity and accountability. And Miranda, finally, the, the other big story of the week, of course, was the strikes and the wave of strikes on Wednesday, one of the worst potential strikes we've seen. How much damage do you think this is causing Rishi Sunak? Why do you think, I mean, he seems prepared to to ride it out, at least for the time being, doesn't he? Yeah, the decision to sort of tough it out is a fascinating one, isn't it? Because some of the unions seem to say that the government's not even engaging in genuine pay negotiation where they are in the room. I mean, I think that public patience and public support for the strikers is sort of different when you look at the different sectors. For example, I was mentioning the teachers' strike earlier on. There was some very interesting polling which showed that if you actually have a child in a state school, you're quite likely to support the teachers' strike that happened on Wednesday. But amongst the general population, there's a slight lead for those who aren't sympathetic. So I think it's going to be very interesting to watch how that shifts. When it comes to things like the NHS or indeed the trains, 
you know, most of us are exposed to the chaos that is caused by the industrial action. So our sympathy is sort of strained by both sides. And of course, we've got coming up after the first 100 days, the next 100 days are going to be pretty tricky, aren't they? You've got the strikes to deal with, you've got the Northern Ireland Protocol, which of course we haven't for once discussed <laughs> on the podcast. The boats question, which Stephen's alluded to, where we're waiting for the legislation, will that be enough to satisfy Tory MPs? Then of course the budget and this whole clamour for tax cuts from the Tory right. So a daunting entry for the new Prime Minister, but uh, for the time being, Stephen Bush and Miranda Green. Thanks very much. The Green Industrial Revolution is coming. The US is ready for it with President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act and its $369 billion of subsidies for green technologies. The EU's preparing too, responding to those US subsidies with an easing of tax credit rules. But what about the UK? Well, the Tory MP Chris Skidmore has done a review. It calls on the Tories to understand that the clean energy drive is vital to prosperity. And that review came a couple of weeks before the oil giant Shell announced record annual profits of almost $40 billion, the highest in its 115-year history. Ed Miliband, Labour's climate change spokesman, said the UK government's messaging is totally off the mark. And this is head-scratching, to put it mildly. They have built in a massive loophole just for fossil fuel companies, not for other energy companies, so that If they make so-called investments, they get massive tax breaks for that. So they are incentivising investments in fossil fuels, not in renewables. I'm joined by our commentator, Robert Shrimsley, and the deputy political editor, Jim Pickard. Robert, you wrote a column on the government's green agenda this week. Are they getting it wrong? I think it's, it's more nuanced than that. I think the government has come up with a number of policies, number of subsidy ideas, important legislation, most of which is moving the country in the right direction. The criticism that people make of this, and that certainly the Skidmore Review makes, is not that they lack good intent, but that they lack delivery, that they're too half-hearted, that many of the investment plans they announce are subject to, say, annual investment funding rounds rather than, say, 10-year funding rounds, which you might see in some cases in Germany, that they're a bit stop-start, that on a number of things they want to do, we're still waiting for the roadmaps. So, for example, we're still waiting for them to offer a clear path for small modular nuclear reactors, an area where Britain could have a significant advantage. But we're still waiting on sites, we're still waiting on the details. And so I think the criticism is not that the government isn't doing many of the right things, but it's not doing them well enough. And obviously, the situation in America with the Inflation Reduction Act just hammers home a key point, which is that The UK, like the rest of the world, is facing two major and almost simultaneous industrial revolutions. You have the AI industrial revolution and you have the clean energy industrial revolution. And the rules and terms of these are being set by the major power blocks, by the US, the EU and China. And if the UK is going to prosper in any of these, it's got to be really fast, really thoughtful and really decisive. It's got to be all the things that the government said it was going to be after Brexit, which it isn't yet showing itself capable of being. Now, Jim, since David Cameron referred to green crap almost a decade ago, the Conservatives, including Boris Johnson, have had a pretty good record on the environment, haven't they? It has chopped and changed. I mean, as Robert was saying, the political certainty hasn't really been there. And the irony of David Cameron, who famously tried to get planning permission and failed to put a uh, wind turbine on his house in West London, he branded himself as a green Tory for years. And as soon as he got into government, he basically bottled it because he was worried about backbench Tory MPs uh, and the Tory membership as well. And we've seen just in the last six months, when Liz Truss was Prime Minister, she was pro onshore wind, but she was 
setting out ideas to make it harder to put solar panels on agricultural land, you remember? Mm. And then when Rishi Sunak came along, he was kind of the other way around. He wanted to make it harder to have onshore wind, and he only changed that after a backbench rebellion. It doesn't project a message that these guys know precisely where they want to be on all of these different technologies in the rollout. So the politics is a little bit uncertain, and I think the other point is the fiscal uncertainty where basically this government is a centre-right government, and it looks across at what Joe Biden is doing in America And that is not really the style of Rishi Sunak when he's trying to tighten public expenditure. And there are a couple of lower tech examples of where things are not going well. There was something called the Green Homes Grant, which the government pioneered, and then it scrapped it. So I think we lost something like 1.4 billion worth of support for insulation and making homes more energy efficient. We hear a lot about electronic vehicles and getting the infrastructure in place for EVs, but it actually isn't coming. I saw a stat that showed that there are more charging points in the London borough of Westminster than there are, I think, in Manchester and Birmingham put together. So it's become a niche area, a niche mode of transport rather than the future. So it's not that there isn't a sort of general will for this, but they're not following through with conviction. And the point you made in your column is that when things get tough financially, the instincts of previous Conservative governments, including David Cameron's, is to row back on some of the green projects. Yeah, that's right. Look, there's a generous answer you can put to this, which is that actually a lot of money gets wasted. So a lot of the subsidies that Joe Biden will throw at industry in America, they will prove to be wasted. They will invest in technologies that don't work. And what the government is trying to do is be smart. So they will look at things like carbon capture use and storage. They will look at so-called green hydrogen or electrolyzed hydrogen. They will look at other things like tidal and nuclear power and say, where can the UK be a leader? Let's put our chips on those things. But even this is taking too long. Just to zone out for a second, basically look at what is net zero and what is the government trying to do and how ambitious is it? And recall that when Theresa May signed up to this, it was in the dying weeks of her premiership. Mm. It was almost like she was grasping for some sort of legacy and went for this. And people didn't really know much about that. So to get to net zero, what you have to do is not only decarbonize the electricity system, which is already pretty far gone, you know, half of, half of our electricity already comes from low carbon sources. But electricity is only about a quarter of our total energy that we use. The other three quarters is the difficult bit. On electricity, wind has become so cheap that we probably will get there quite soon. But it's the other three quarters. It's when you look at transport, getting cars away from petrol and diesel and onto electric, and getting households and offices and commercial buildings away from gas-fired power Mm. and onto electric power sources. That's where the real cost comes in. And a lot of that is kind of... 5, 10, 15 years away in terms of the government's thinking. And there's a reason why they've pushed it that far away. It's because it costs an awful lot. And that is where, unless the technology gets cheaper, it's going to be politically incredibly difficult. And Jim, how much of this has got to come from the government, do you think? You wrote a piece this week about the environmental sector being worried we're being left behind in a subsidy race with the US. Yes. So basically what's happened is Biden has moved with his Inflation Reduction Act and Europe is following suit. They're talking about relaxing some state aid rules and maybe allowing more subsidy. And it feels a bit like Britain's just caught between these two friendly Goliaths. And I went to Jeremy Hunt's chancellor's speech about a week ago and I said, apart from whinging about protectionism, what precisely is the British government going to do to counter this? And he didn't really have an answer at this point. You know, they can talk about the fact that they already have subsidies for things like offshore wind and they're going to roll them out to things like hydrogen and CCS. But it's nothing like as generous as what the Americans are doing. And colleagues of ours in the industrial team talk to people from batteries, industry, hydrogen, CCS, and loads of them were saying to our fellow reporters at the FT, 
we're really worried investment is already starting to seep out towards America and people are talking about shifting their investment. And the other small point on this is that the conservative position is that a significant proportion of the investment that needs to come for the green energy revolution should come from the private sector, very significant amounts, whereas Labour is looking for less. But the longer you leave it, the harder you make it to get that investment. The more nervous industry is about investing, the more the state is going to end up funding. And it's really interesting that Jeremy Hunt gave that speech that you went to, Jim, where he talked about the four E's and he talked about education, enterprise, employment. And I thought, here comes the fourth one, environment. But of course it wasn't, was it? It was everywhere. <laughs> it's rather, rather pathetic addition to the list of levelling up reference. But it's fascinating, isn't it, that the environment isn't part of that sort of four-point plan that Jeremy Hunt's putting forward, where it's very much at the heart of what Labour's proposing. Yeah, and Boris Johnson actually made the green economy part of his future vision. He used mm. it in speech after speech as, you know, what do you stand for? Where do you want to take the country? He was a late convert to environmentalism and net zero, but when he embraced it, he fully embraced it. Rishi Sunak seems to still see it through more of a kind of treasury lens about how much will this all cost and will it, will it you know, damage people's household finances and that kind of thing. Whereas the Labour policy is very explicitly... And I think this has not been particularly noticed by the public how ambitious Labour is on this. They would borrow £28 billion a year. They would use this to basically co-invest with the private sector in everything from offshore wind to some of these new technologies. And also, interestingly, to get the nuclear programme off the ground. Mm. The nuclear programme has stuttered and basically failed to do an awful lot over the last 15 years. Even though Hinkley Point is being built, it's massively late. All this talk about Sizewell finally getting approval, it's Sizewell's miles off. Labour do a much more interventionist approach. Now, Robert, you've ploughed through Chris Skidmore's epic critique of government policy. If you were to pick out one or two things the government should be doing to get ahead of the game on the environment, what would they be? I think it does come down to providing certainty about which technologies, which industries it's backing, and putting a longer-term funding structure around them. I mean, one of the things Chris Simmel says is, if you're doing annual funding rounds, the money is going to get spent over 10 years. Why not give a 10-year funding round and give people that certainty which attracts private investment? But I think they should put a lot of effort into carbon capture usage and storage. That's undoubtedly one that's coming and one where the UK has potential. They've absolutely, as Jim says, got to commit on nuclear. I think hydrogen is worth some effort because it is one that people put a lot of hope in. There's an interesting area which is recycling critical minerals. So some of the rare earths, almost all of these are processed and produced in China, partly because it's such a dirty process that most Western countries won't allow them environmentally. But there is a bit of an industry coming in Britain of recycling things like lithium. Mm. So I think those are the kind of areas. But I think it's more about just providing that absolute certainty that says this is at the top of our economic agenda. It's not a side issue. Yeah, It's at the top. I mean, the one thing I would say about political certainty is that uh, at least Britain, we know that all the major parties are committed to tackling climate change. If, if you're about to shift your production to the US, there is the very real possibility that in a couple of years' time, a Donald Trump White House reverses some of this stuff. Very so, fair point. You know, we're, we're a little bit more stable here. You but, say that, Jim, but actually there is a very vocal caucus in the Conservative Party and in the wider Conservative ecosystem, you know, the Conservative pundits, people like the Farages, who are pushing very hard against net zero. It's a minority view within the Conservative Parliamentary Party at the moment, but it's a growing view in that caucus, which has always exercised a substantial gravitational pull on the future direction of the party, which is why I also think it's an area where Rishi Sunak needs to get out ahead and lead. And I've always thought that that could come to a head when we get past the decarbonisation of the electricity system and when we get on to trying to force people to buy electric pumps and force people to buy expensive electric cars, which is why I suspect it will not happen unless the prices of those things 
drop. On a related note, I guess, we had Shell's bumper profits this week. Do you think there's any chance of the government increasing the windfall tax on the energy companies? So what I've always found interesting about the government's approach to the windfall tax on the oil and gas industries is that we had a whole summer of ministers pretending it didn't exist. And in its original incarnation, it was going to levy £28 billion on the oil and gas sector. In November, Rishi Sunak increased it to about £55 billion, partly by increasing the level of it, partly by extending to electricity companies. And so the things, they already have quite a big oil and gas windfall tax, and actually probably bigger than the one that Labour was talking about months earlier. So when you hear these opposition politicians saying this windfall tax isn't punitive enough, they are talking slightly with a forked tongue. But the one area where you could see the government reconsider is that the windfall tax does have an investment allowance for the oil and gas companies, and that's something that Labour has heavily criticised. Now, I wouldn't be totally surprised if maybe in the budget Jeremy Hunt did have another look at that one. Jim and Robert, thank you for joining us. And that's it for this episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also appreciate positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Anna Dedda and Manuela Saragossa. Sound engineer is Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.